My name is Dr. Nate Shanock. And my name is Merrick Egber. This is the official podcast of the Els for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. Aren't we? But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm a part of our growing research team and a tennis coach. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like Lou. I am also autistic. This is our 15th episode of the podcast, celebrating the best of humanity with special guest Josh Deersey Deer. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all of you four autism fans. First, here are some news and updates about the foundation. The first item is about episode 14. Tune in to our last episode, episode 14, where we talked about mental health and wellness and autism with special guest Dr. Kimberly Ravicchio, a part of our ever-growing mental health team. I also decided to record a special monologue at the beginning of the episode because sometimes it is needed to let it all hang out. Second story, on Friday, June 4th, I was pleased to be a part of our third work experience graduation ceremony with three excellent people from our program. Our work experience program teaches individuals different types of work experiences to get them suited for a work environment and to allow them greater self-knowledge of where their work skills should go to. One of our micro businesses, We Are Foodies, is at the core of our current work experience program, which allows members from it to go out into the community and to sell snacks, lunches to people interested in having additional energy in their day-to-day routines. As the administrator of the Facebook We Are Foodies page, I was so proud of seeing the class of spring 2021 graduate with full honors. I wish them the best. This Friday, we will be having another showcase of our InterAbility course. Presented by our friends at the Palm Beach Opera, the InterAbility course allows individuals of all abilities to participate in the, heart, in the art of harmonizing and vocalizing with some fantastic fresh, freshly picked tunes. I was able to see them for the holiday season last year, and they were incredible. To enroll somebody you know into the program, please contact Kelly Coots and or Erica Lyles on our show notes. We will be having our new game night on June 11th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. on Zoom, where we can engage many of our clients in a series of games. Every second week on a Friday from 7 to 8.30 p.m., we will be having these fun, these fun times with Howard Thomas, our employment coordinator, and my co-host for these events. Make sure to contact him or Trudy Syak, our adult services director, for more details. June 18th, a day before my birthday, has become known as Autism Pride Day. Because it can be tough for anyone with a condition, disability, and so forth to feel proud about themselves, I could talk about that myself. And with the earlier treatments of individuals with autism, it is needed to feel like your autism isn't going to limit you but instead can be a benefit or advantage. With improvements in technology and research and practices with a greater understanding of autism and a greater knowledge of humanity, well, this once empty ground has been paved by a variety of individuals 
all over the neurodiverse world. Thanks to everyone. And a day later on June 19th, I will be celebrating my 35th birthday with my parents on the west coast of Florida. We will be recreating a trip that was cut short by sickness, but overall are expecting to have a good time. Walking in some of the state's majestic parks, checking out historical museums, and a groovy collection of Beatles merchandise are in the cards, along with eating a variety of great food. And then a day after my birthday, June 20th is Father's Day. We would like to use this day to acknowledge all the fathers who have offspring with autism and how great they are for being another important contributor to the, to the community. Dr. Nate Chinock and I believe that we commend fathers who work very, very hard for their children, and we want to thank all of them for that. My father has always been my best friend. Sometimes people get us confused for brothers, and if you didn't know any better, you would think that our lives together were like some buddy movie, even if he is 31 years older than I am. Out of my two parents, I feel that all of my quirks and eccentricities are more related to my father. Culturally, my father has usually been my biggest influence on my life, or my mother introduced me to the Beach Boys and was there as an early influence on my love for movies. My father was the one who got me hooked even deeper onto influences that have been with me for a long time. When I was tiny, he and I got my first video game console from Sears, a Nintendo Entertainment System and Super Mario Brothers slash Duck Hunt, which made me want to become a video game designer. Later, he would be my main person when I got hooked into the Beatles. We would go to songwriting festivals together because he would play guitar and sing, and I would provide backups and percussion. He was a perfect collaborator for my interest in songwriting, and I think that we still make a good team. Usually, when we go on our trips, my father is influential on the realism of the situation, especially during these times of COVID-19. And so he will play a role in my birthday weekend trip and he will pick much of what he will feel comfortable with, along with my mother, and we will all have a fun time. Much of Sunday will be on the road, but he will have the freedom to pick out how we will end the day. Generally, we agree with him on many things. So, Nate, I know that this is this sort of comes as like a phantom ghost emerging from the dark. So here's two questions. How influential was your father to your life and what will you do for Father's Day? Well, I appreciate these questions. First of all, what an exciting month between Autism Pride Day, Merrick's birthday and Father's Day. And, you know, after our discussion on Mother's Day in the last episode, I think, uh, admittedly, our fathers felt a little left out. So. I'm glad that we're able to talk about them for a little bit today and, and all the great dads out there who, who, like Merrick said, we just commend for all that they do for their families and in supporting their children. So my dad, I would say, is, has been the most influential person in my life. Um, I've learned all the tricks of the trade from my dad. And, you know, I, I can just remember being a little a little kid and having so much joy getting to go to baseball games, going on trips to, you know, Florida when I lived in Chicago or just anywhere uh, throughout the country. My, my dad was always um, looking for fun things to do and just making sure that, that we as a family were staying active and always having a good time. 
And when it comes to my own dreams and aspirations, my dad has always been the number one person in my corner, especially when it comes to sports. He's always the one sitting in the first row, um, occasionally nervously doing push-ups. Uh, but that, that comes with, with caring so much that you get a little bit nervous about the outcomes. And so I just, I really want to thank my, my dad for setting a great example for me and, and just always being my number one uh, system of support. And second question, as far as Father's Day plans, I would imagine that maybe we'll get out and play some tennis together. That's one of our favorite things to do. And I'm sure we'll be, we'll be eating a good meal wherever it is. Um, maybe grilling, maybe we'll get out and grill. But um, happy Father's Day to all. It's, it's, a, it's a big day. Yeah, it definitely is. And we've got two more. Yeah, we've got two more things before we end the news and updates. So after having two successful months of our 2021 golf challenge, we will be moving to our near and far neighbors of the north, Georgia. And for the first time this season, Canada, where one of our foundations happens to be. On June 14th and Monday, we will be at the Hawks Ridge Golf Club in Ball Ground, Georgia. And on June 21st, we will be at the Richmond Country Club in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. Please be sure to contact Paige Scholard, our events manager and Golf Challenge Superstar, for more details, which we will have on our show notes. And lastly, our great summer camp program is coming back live for another July's worth of fun and festivities. Held on our center grounds, a variety of individuals will get to interact with fellow campers and staff while engaging in fun, engaging activities. Currently, the enrollment has been so popular that we are full, but make sure to contact Kelly Coots, our rec supervisor, to have your child be on a wait list. So those are the news and updates. Our greatest award and a cornerstone to our Golf Challenge series of fundraising tournaments is what is called the Autism Spectrum Award. Ever since 2015, when we opened our Center of Excellence, we've been giving an award to the person most deserving of being honored as an exemplar of autism. In 2015, our first award winner was Mr. Josh Deersey Deer of Texas. In 2014, Team Deersey, Josh's team, started playing in our Golf Challenge Series at TBC Craig Ranch in McKinney, Texas. His team did so well in ability and fundraising bravado that Deersey qualified to play in Las Vegas, making him the first individual of autism to play at one of our grand finale events as the last part of the Golf Challenge Tour. Ever since then, he has been a strong leader in coaching and instruction in the game of golf, especially as an ambassador for our Game on Autism golf program. So Nate and I want to thank you for being on our show tonight. You're welcome. Nate, do you want? Do you have anything you would like to contribute in introducing our guests? Absolutely. Just want to say thank you, Deersy. It's an honor to be talking to you. And you know, as an athlete, well, former athlete myself, um, it's really cool to have you on the show. So, yeah. So. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this podcast interview with the two of you. 
Excellent. Um, I, I want to start off by asking you, so um, like I mentioned a little bit, you know, I have some experience with sports as a former college tennis player, and I did a bit of coaching also. And I like to talk about how impactful sports have been in my life. So Josh, I was wondering as a very accomplished golfer, could you speak a little bit about how you got into playing and just how this sport, uh, what it means to you? First off, um, when I was eight years old, my dad used to play um, lots of golf when we were club court members at Hackberry Creek Golf Club in Irving, Texas. And when I went out to watch him and his friends play, that's how I got motivated, getting into the game of golf. Yeah, that's a, a great inspiration to have to have your dad out there showing you the ropes. Yeah, he really did. And then when I was 14 years old, I started playing in the junior golf camps at Iron Horse Golf Course, where I currently work at since 2014. And then when I, it was my freshman year, when I was at Harvest Christian Academy, in Wataga, Texas, I played on the high school golf team through my senior year and for my junior year, we qualified for regionals. In my junior year, we I was in this sudden death playoff with two golfers from two different schools. And on the second hole, second playoff hole, I hit a really good tee shot on a part three hole and I almost made the putt. And after one of the high school kids um, made the putt. I went over to him and told him congrats, and I wished him and his team good luck in state. And it, it was a terrific season for me and my high school golf team, my junior year. Then in my senior year was one of the best seasons for me and the high school golf team. We won first place every tournament along with the district and regionals, and we advanced for state and ended up winning fourth or fifth place and I was the team MVP in my junior year and senior year and had academic all-state medalists in my senior year as well yeah that's that's really cool to hear you highlight some of the the best experiences from your high school days um, was there anything about the the team aspect of, of like playing golf uh, with your friends and teammates that you found especially rewarding? Um, I got to say, um, when I was getting used to the game of golf, it took time for me to get used to the game of golf and just getting used to enjoying the time with my friends and teammates who played on the golf team with me. Then it just went on from there. Yeah, definitely. I, like I was telling you, I played tennis in high school and tennis and golf, I think they can both be, because they're individual sports, they can be, um, they're, they're great for people who do really want to just channel all their energy and, and focus in um, on the game completely by themselves. But um, I, I think it's that high school uh, team experience. I think that's a cool opportunity to, you know, share, share that glory and that fun with other people. 
So and and um, after I graduated from Harvest Christian Academy back in 2013, it was in the fall of 2013 when I was attending University of North Texas. As I wanted to major in sports management, I went there for like three semesters. But then in 2015, that's when I transferred to Golf Academy of America in Dallas. And in my first semester, I was getting used to the program because when I went to Golf Academy of America, it was like taking classes that's part of the business of golf. And I graduated in 2016 with an associate's diploma and a teaching certificate. And I wanted to become a golf instructor too. Yeah, that's terrific. And it's probably very rewarding for you to be able to share that knowledge and skill set with others now. So I want to transition a little bit to, to talking about coaching now and also just using golf and tennis as you know valuable tools so at the at the Ellis center we do offer some group classes focusing on tennis and golf for individuals of all ages and from your perspective why are these types of recreational activities such useful therapeutic tools um for golf for example for golf and tennis for people who are on the spectrum, it's good to get out of the house to get good exercise because it, it is good for your health too. Absolutely, yeah. The physical activity component and then probably some benefits on mental health as well, right? That's right. And for, and for a couple of reasons, you know, why golf is good exercise, it helps me learn to relax. And it also helps the kids to learn the game of golf too. And it's also a social um, sport to play with friends and or meeting new people, no matter who you're playing with. Definitely. Yeah, those are all good points. And... So as far as being an instructor, what do you find to be rewarding about that? Um, what are some strategies you like to use for teaching? First off, um, when I became a certified golf instructor, I was like, I wanted to teach kids you know, with no disabilities and also kids who are on the autism spectrum to help them understand the different areas in the game of golf. So the kids who could become good golfers and help them with their talents. And for the kids who are on the autism spectrum, I work hard to help them get the passion for the game of golf, just like me. Absolutely. So, and then going along with, with certain strategies with teaching, um, do you find that uh, when you're working with with kids that it's helpful to uh, you know try to be very enthusiastic and and make it you know make the drills a little more fun um, so they can relate to it? 
and along with doing instruction, I always like encouraging the kids, you know, whenever they make a good shot, example, like putting, chipping and false swing, I would enjoy giving them a smile and giving them high fives. Like I say, good job and or nice shots. Yeah, those are all really good strategies for getting that engagement and just stimulating the interest and motivation to keep playing. You know, that's why when we do the tennis classes at the L Center, we, we always try to high five each other when we hit a good shot and we do a cheer at the beginning of practice and the end of practice. And um, you probably, you can attest to this too, but that's, that's a really cool part of playing sports is that the ability to, to get together as a group and do something really cool. Yeah. And I would also like to talk about a friend of mine who currently lives in Colleyville, Texas, if that sounds good. Yeah, please. First off, um, his name is Andrew Atkins. His dad grew up with my dad in West Texas in Sweetwater. First off, um, Andrew and his two brothers, Preston and Trey, grew up playing baseball through high school. And about five, six years ago, Andrew got into the game of golf. He said I motivated and encouraged him getting into the game of golf after he grew up playing baseball. That is really cool. And also in the first year when Andrew got into the game of golf, he and I would get together once in a while, depending on my schedule. And I got to teach him until he started to improve. He's, he's been telling me that he's been practicing on the driving range and playing in some tournaments between summer season and in his high school golf tournaments with the great fine Colleyville high school golf team. Wow. So you must be a pretty darn good coach. <laughs> yeah. And about, and also about Andrew after he's played in some of the high school golf tournaments, and in the summer tournaments, he's already broke 80s for 18 holes, like around four or five times in his golf career. And I've been really proud of him, of how he's improved and how he's playing. That is amazing. Well, and then, and then in 2019, that's when my family and I qualified for the finale event. I invited Andrew to come participating in the finale with me and I got to introduce him to Ernie and Liesel too. Very cool. Well, Merrick, maybe there is still hope for us in the game of golf. All we need is a coach as good as Deersey. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And that's, that's great. Um, so now uh, my first question to you, uh, Deersey is this. You were the first winner of the Autism Spectrum Award in 2015. Can you explain about the Autism Spectrum Award and how it has benefited you? Um, the Elson for Autism Spectrum Award is an award who is given to an individual on the spectrum for character, attitude, and contribution to people who are on the autism spectrum. And also people can be nominated and there is also a committee who votes on who they choose and in the first year they chose me and also on the year when I was voted as the first spectrum award winner 
it was a great honor for me to be chosen and recognized. After I got chosen and recognized, I got to be on stage with Ernie and Lizzo and Todd Lewis from the Golf Channel and got to say a few words. And then after I said a few words with Ernie, Lizzo, and Todd, I got to be on stage with Train and saying, don't stop believing. <laughs> That's a great song. And, after, and during the song, everyone was impressed that they couldn't believe that I knew every word. I listened to Don't Stop Believing most of the time, and it's a really good song. And then after the finale, Todd decided to do a story about me on the Golf Channel and about my activities in golf and hockey. And then I started sharing my stories to families who have kids on the spectrum because it gives them hope. Wow. Yeah, I remember watching that video and I just came out of it just so impressed by you and your spirit. And it's just, it's wonderful. Thank you. So uh, I know that you are an OPP, official program provider for us. Can you tell us a little bit about that? First off, um, I, when I first met um, Mary Kay and Jen Han, who previously worked with the Ls for Autism Foundation, you know, between tournaments and the Ls for Autism Game on Golf Clinics, I started helping out with the Game on Clinics and events, for example, like the Honda Classic. And also the tournaments, PGA Golfer Rich Bean. And then, um, and Jen Han trained me and my mom and the staff at Iron Horse by doing a pilot golf clinic in 2016. And then we have a connection with the CEO of Arcus Golf who wanted to add the game on golf clinics to all of their courses in the Arcus golf business. We started, we were planning to start a pilot clinic at Cowboys Golf Club in Grapevine a year ago before COVID hit. And we are now talking about starting it again soon. Cool. That's, that's really, really, um, yeah. I mean, but while we do, of course, would give ourselves some credit for all of this, it, it also, a lot of credit has to be given to you because, you know, you've got that kind of personality that can move mountains if possible. Thank you. So um, anyways, at the very, uh, my last question to you is, what advice would you give to other individuals with autism and pursuing their dreams? Um, for individuals, I advise them that they go after their passions of what they find interesting, fun, and where they can contribute for the rest of their lives. And for me, I have followed my passion by going into the golf industry, and it also has led me to all kinds of things I couldn't imagine. You know, for you know, for example, after I met Ernie and Lee, so I have felt connections and became friends with PGA golfers Greg Chalmers, Ryan Palmer, and Jordan Spieth, and also NHL legend Timu Solani. Well, 
Before we go, I would just like to uh, thank you a lot, Dearzy, um, especially because you've actually uh, done something uh, historical for our podcast. You are actually our first interview that we have done on this podcast with someone who is actually on the spectrum. And I'm not even counting myself in this equation. So you are a very, very special individual. And we have used our first, you know, appreciation to interview you. And because you are such a remarkable individual. Thank you. I would also like to say thank you again. And uh, just... I was very moved and inspired by your story and, and the work that you're doing, you know, to, to pass your passion for the game of golf on to others and try to, um, you know, give, give them that gift as well. Thank you. And you're welcome. I re it was a great privilege for me to be part of this podcast interview. Thank, Thank you. So you you're welcome. As always, it is time to go over Today in the World of Autism, starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Shinnok, and his fantastic research-oriented stories. All right, here we go. Very excited to share these two stories with you all today. The first one is on the topic of a potential biological distinction between girls and boys on the spectrum. It was a few episodes ago that we spoke about some of the barriers to diagnosis and alternative presentation of behaviors seen in girls with autism. Many traits are often less pronounced and camouflaging of symptoms is relatively common. Now, recently published work from Allison Jack and a team of researchers at George Mason University has highlighted a brain activation characteristic that may reveal important insights into how autism differs in girls from a biological standpoint. The study sought to determine differences in brain activation to biological motion videos between four groups of eight to 17 year olds, boys with ASD, boys without ASD, girls with ASD, and girls without ASD. Although the male condition did not show significant differences in activation to the various videos which showed glowing connected dots that simulated various motions, girls with autism had significantly less activation in sensory motor areas which integrate our interpretation of others' movements and the striatum which is involved in processing social reward. So that was the hallmark finding that girls with ASD showed this difference in activation. They showed less activation in sensory motor areas and the striatum compared to girls without autism. Biological motion detection has been critically linked to perception of valuable social information, including intentions, personality traits, identity, and nonverbal communications. Notably, this team also examined DNA samples from participants, focusing on the size of copy number variations, which are duplications or deletions of stretches of a chromosome. 
And CNV size is positively correlated with increased genetic disruption. So although, uh, so autistic girls had significantly larger CNVs than boys, which according to the authors supports the female protective effect theory, which is an interesting theory that posits that girls require a larger genetic hit so more of these CNVs than boys in order to show traits of the condition, to show behavioral traits. Interestingly, the differences in CNV size were especially pronounced in the striatum, the area that was found to be less active in processing these biomotion videos. So I've linked to this research study in our show notes and I wanna just ask you, Merrick, is there anything you'd like to add um, from this, this study or, or anything you thought was interesting? Okay, so um, this is gonna be an interesting interpretation, but I'm willing to give it. So my thought on the sensory motor areas in the striatum. As we all know, it has been traditionally thought of for decades upon decades, well, actually centuries, and since time millennia, that the males of a group would be the ones who would be hunting the animals, eating the animals, and that kind of thing. So through that kind of uh, process, of course, they would be more, uh, how can I say this? They would be more active when it comes to looking closely at, at others' movements, whether it be human or whether it be animal. Because men, for many, many, many centuries and decades, were seen as the protective type as the one to run to when you're in danger. So of course, if someone had a greater ability to notice sensory motor areas in movements, animal or man or human being, I mean, that would be seen as more of a characteristic as time would go on. And also, um, when it comes to the striatum, that is very interesting because in traditional conceptions, it is the woman who is probably a little bit more concerned with social status than the man is, but I would also say that the same kind of thing could also apply on almost an even keel because as the man for years and centuries thought that they were the only people to go to work. In that way, that affects the social striatum and that affects the ability to create a greater understanding of social reward and, a so, and of a social pulse when it comes to the greater, um, how can I say it, the greater hierarchical structure of, of the workplace. And so, by going with those kinds of uh, ideas that have been eons old, that would be very interesting to think about. 
but <clears throat> but it also makes a lot more sense that women, as I've said before, are generally more empathetic and are generally more able to are are generally seen as more predisposed to maturity than men are. So any kind of, you know, difference would seem to be a little bit less centered or focused overall. Uh, and there would be less of a difference when it comes to women all around than it would be for men. Um, and, you know, I mean, I don't know if, if I'm really like going into a period of, of a complete non sequitur here, but I do believe that that is my interpretation of the findings. That is, as I've said before, men for since eons ago were seen as the hunters, the, the protectors, and so, therefore, um, when it comes to seeing other movements to determine whether they would get attacked or whether this would be the right time to strike, then that is, you know, the possibility. And men also, for eons, were seen as the workers. And in a community, you know, uh, the person most liable to affect the social structure or the structure of a society are the people who who work in a way. And even, you know, even protesting, even activism, anything can be considered to be work in a way. So right. the people who go out there and work, and that has generally been seen as men for a long, long time would be the ones to reap the social reward. But if you're not exactly, if you're not seen for many, many years as the processor of that social reward, um, then of course it's gonna be a little bit less of a, of a active display. Now I hate to ask you this, Nate, but does any of what I said make any sense? Definitely. Listen, I'm happy you you brought this. You took a, an evolutionary psychology angle on, you know, how exactly these areas and these uh, social skills develop and maybe an explanation as to, to how uh, how and why they're different in genders also. So I, I thought that was very interesting. And and actually, you know, one of the things I was left questioning from this article is like you're kind of alluding to as far as some of these social abilities um is it simply that uh the females without asd did do they just um really excel at this ability and is that what maybe created the difference between the two female groups uh, a difference that was not present between the male groups. So I, I don't know that it was a perfectly uh, designed study, but I do think that the, the fact or the finding that, um, you know, 
there were these larger CNVs in girls uh, than boys, I think that that, that um, to some degree corroborates the idea that maybe there's there's more of a there's more of a necessary genetic hit in order for um, some of these these skills to be problematic or to be less proficient. But um, no, you you bring, brought up a lot of interesting points there. Well, I certainly hope that you know. I, I certainly hope that I brought things that are you know thought provoking and not you know gonna be in any type of uh how do they call this did they call this salacious or something like that but <laughs> it, it wasn't my complete it wasn't my intention to make it like that it, it just comes from theories and thoughts in my head no and i i thought it was really interesting and it's it's in line with that evolutionary psychology approach that that, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to discuss more in depth sometime because it's a really interesting field. But, you know, uh, one of the coolest theories with that approach that I'll, I'll share very quickly is that, um, you know, we could look at adolescents and, and why they kind of rebel and seek out this independence from their, from their parents uh, once they come of age is actually from an evolutionary standpoint you know, that's, that was the age when, you know, humans typically started, um, you know, leading villages or starting families. So biologically, you know, there may be that, um, that drive to, to, to just become more independent and branch out during those years. Yeah, I have many theories about that, but that would completely drive us off course. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I've saved this for something else. <laughs> I, I'm already drifting too far away here, so okay. I'll, I'll I'll get back to my second story. Okay. Okay, so um, for story number two, I came across an interview that was published in the Guardian magazine, the Manchester Guardian magazine, featuring David Mitchell who is the author of best-selling novels such as Cloud Atlas and Ghost Written. And Mitchell is also well-known for translating the autism memoir, The Reason I Jump, from Japanese to English. And this was a task he accomplished with his Japanese wife, Kaiko Yoshida. Mitchell and his wife read the book for the first time when their four-year-old son had been recently diagnosed with autism. In the interview, Mitchell explains that the knowledge and perspective shared by author Naoki Higashida, who has nonverbal ASD, was a lifesaver for his family in better understanding their son. When asked specifically how the book helped him and his family, he replied, at a practical level, but also at a more existential level, it felt like evidence that we hadn't lost our son. He was still here, but there was this huge communication barrier. However, knowing he's there on the other side and wondering whether he's there or not are very different things. It really encouraged us. When asked about his initial emotions upon reading the book for the first time, he said, if I'm honest, my initial reaction was guilt. Without wanting to, I basket cased my son. I believed all the myths 
closed all the doors in his future and condemned him to mute prison for a year or two. Then I read Naoki's book and wanted to say, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. The book ends with Naoki's short story, I'm right here. It's ridiculous. In the process of translation, I went through it seven times and cried every time. It's a massively emotional experience and never loses its power. It still makes me emotional. These remarks, in my opinion, were very thought provoking. And so I wanted to, to share just a couple of them today, but I've also linked this interview to our show notes. And the reason I feel that they're so thought provoking is because it's just a really valuable lesson to be learned that one's communication and what they're able to convey to us does not always indicate the whole story when it comes to their thoughts, emotions, personality, and well-being. And so sometimes, like David Mitchell is alluding to here, it's necessary for us to try to dig a little deeper and try to just understand that there's more to this person than what they're able to convey through communication. Merrick, I know you have some thoughts on the book and now documentary, the reason I jump, but from a broader standpoint, um, do you have any takeaways from these comments? Um, <clears throat> well, I will have to say, I am also curious about what his wife, um, what, what her feelings about all of this happened to be. Um, because I think that it wouldn't surprise me if his wife was very influential in uh, the whole process of getting this book, translating this book, and all of that. Um, and I also uh, do wonder, you know, about what anecdotal evidence he would have that, you know, his thoughts drove him to a kind of a personal, and I'll, I'll use this word, um, to a kind of a personal hell. You know, and so, but the comments that uh, I'm reading right now, um, I think that when you meet someone or you have someone and you expect them to completely open up to you or you expect them to say, you know, all the same things that most other kids would say, and you're, you're expecting for that whole thing to basically be, you know, set in stone and that kind of thing. And then you realize, well, some kids are born different or some kids have a difference in them that may not be, you know, the inability to see clearly, the inability to hear clearly, or maybe the... Um, and it may be the inability to speak clearly or to speak at all. And it's not about, you know, it's not about muscles. It's not about the larynx. It's about a neurological disorder. And so I think that what would be also be interesting is to figure out exactly how David, how Mr. Mitchell has actually opened up the floodgates to allow his son 
greater emphasis and greater inclusion in the world of communication that we all sometimes take for granted. Um, you know, I think that Naoki Higashida did a great service for the world, for Japan, for the nonverbal autism community. I think he did a really, really great service. And I think that David Mitchell did an absolutely great service in translating this book. Um, you know, this was 2007, 2008. By that time, I had uh, started my longest running job, close to the longest running job until this one, and I was still going to college. This was a long time ago, actually. And so I don't know what books, if there were any books before that, that were about nonverbal individual with autism that just basically explained, here's everything that has happened to me. And what is also interesting is that Higashida doesn't just, he didn't just write this one book and stop there. He actually wrote like two or three more books and he even has an account online that you can actually like seek him out for, you know, different things related to speeches and that kind of thing, which of course he does through AAC, Augmented Alternative Communication, which we have talked about. Um, I, I think that generally for, for people, this is a really... Uh, similar reaction that many people have to something like this. I think that it is that what is good is that, you know, it takes, it sometimes takes a lot of humanity to go and look at yourself and go, okay, I really, really, really had some horrible thoughts in my head. And maybe it was for my sake, maybe it was also for the child's sake, but I just had these horrible thoughts in my head and then going and saying, you know what? I appreciate my child for who or what he is or she is or anything else involved. Um, and, I, and I am thankful that I have a way to know that my child is gonna be all right, that my child is gonna be okay, and that I will help, I will assist, but it's not like what my initial reaction is. And I, and I think that this Father's Day, you know, if something like this happens and you maybe find out that you have a child or you have a, you know, any kind of child, who happens to have autism, uh, make your first reaction being a reaction of joy, a reaction of pleasure. Don't make it be a reaction like either, oh, woe is me or, oh, woe is the child. Just make the reaction to be one of pleasure and be sure to stick with the child because, you know, there's maybe... I've read before of how difficult it can be for a family to sustain itself if a child was born with a disability. 
And this is especially true for a father, but I think it takes a lot of moral strength. And I think it takes any kind of strength at all to know that you have a child with a, dis with a condition, whether it be autism or not, and that instead of running away from the thing, from instead of running away from the situation, know to bask in the glory and the greatness of the situation as it has appeared before you. And know your nobility in this juxtaposition of, of any kind of course in life. And that's what I think is very, very important is that you always must know that if that child came from you or that or whatever it is, okay, then you must know that that child is a part of you and that you shouldn't just look at it as that child is, you know, I, I, I don't really care about this or whatever, but look at it as a growing experience and as the ability to see yourself as one of the individuals in this person's life to shape them, to grow them, to be able to know that whatever you do, whatever little step you take makes an impact on that person. And I don't know if David Mitchell will ever listen to this podcast, this episode or anything like that, but that would be a very interesting person to talk to later on somewhere down the line um, because, you know, I, I, I do think that it's all about, you know, figuring out the great big mystery and finding out that the solution to the mystery should not just be a one-way ticket to, you know, condemning someone on a personal level. Yeah, I, you, you put all those points very eloquently and I, I agree. I think the, the transformation that he kind of alludes to in his remarks are really meaningful and, and they're honest too. He admits to thinking one way prior to gaining this, this new perspective and understanding. Um, but then I think that's really something that's, that's admirable is, is it being able to admit that you were viewing um, someone's situation or any situation about the world in a not entirely correct light but to have the courage and wherewithal to try to gain more understanding. I think that's, that's something a lot of people can learn from. And especially like you're mentioning, if you, if you have a loved one with autism, um, then, you know, go, going on that journey with them and, and, and trying to understand better. That's, it's really impactful. So I, I will hand it over to you now for, for two more stories, Merrick. Okay. So the first story I would like to share is about Gloria Mendoza, who won the Autism Spectrum Award a year after Deersey. For the purposes of the story, I decided to submit her a series of questions to answer to create a profile that our listeners would enjoy, but the full interview with Q&A will be in our show notes. 
College graduate with a double major in computer science and music, one of her great talents. In 2014, Gloria Mendoza should have been a shoe-in for a successful career already, but her autism was seen as a limiter on her opportunities and possibilities. Because of Jose Velasco's Autism at Work program at SAP, a partner in Ernie L's career in professional golf and a company that specializes in technology, Ms. Mendoza was able to get hired and to fulfill her dreams. A local of the Philadelphia area in Pennsylvania, Gloria was able to sing the national anthem during one of our golf challenge events at the Philadelphia Country Club, where she first became noticed by us in a big way. It wasn't just her performance, but her can-do attitude towards life that catapulted her from being another hardworking human being to an award winner when she won the ASA on her birthday. Ever since then, she has still been working hard at her job at SAP, transitioning from technical quality manager to project manager, and everybody is proud of her there. In her position, she has been able to meet the heads of many corporations and has shown that being successful and autistic are not mutually exclusive. But of course, all of our listeners would know that, right? Nate, I talk about people in these stories to inspire others. How has this story inspired you? First off, I just want to say congratulations again to Ms. Mendoza for being the second Autism Spectrum Award recipient. This award is such an honor and um, we, it's so amazing to hear about the stories of the people who win and not only that, but just the people who are nominated to hear, you know, all the great accomplishments that these individuals have, have been able to, to fulfill in their lives. Um, and in this case, I would say this story is so inspirational because here's someone who face some adversity, you know, not only in, in their diagnosis of autism, but just in how society and a, a certain industry was viewing their, their skills and ability to perform and just never got discouraged and just kept putting one foot forward during the whole process and is now getting to work in that dream field. And I also find it extremely inspiring um, that Gloria was able to get up and sing the national anthem at one of our golf challenge events. I know uh, singing in front of a group of, a group of people is not something that I would do particularly well with. So again, um, great work, Gloria, and, and we wish you all the best in your future dreams and goals. Okay, and my next story is on, for the blog article for this month of June, we would like to highlight our other foundations around the world, including one in Canada, one in South Africa, and one in the UK. While our UK branch doesn't have a website or a center, they do have a presence on the board of directors. Their overall mission is to raise funds to support organizations that provide services to individuals on the spectrum which includes funding the Ernie L's Game on Autism golf program in England and in Ireland through the official program providers, OPPs, program in those countries. That last term may ring a bell to those who listened to our interview where we and Josh Deer, Deersey talked about it. 
One such prominent organization that has received their help is the Golf Trust, a strong organization dedicated to teaching people with disabilities the sport of golf. When the Golf Trust want to know how to expand and enhance their programming for individuals with autism, they would reach out to us. From the work done by Dr. Marlene Sotelo, our executive director, and Jen Hong, a former staff member who was our point course person at the time for our golf challenge series, they were able to work and train 50 of their staff in the Game On program. Ever since this all happened four years ago as an OPP organization, the Golf Trust has seen thousands of children through the Game On Fall Week program, as well as having over 100 clinics. Kai Minai Davis, who is the head representative of the organization, who you may know from a past Instagram live session with Dr. Sotelo, is so thankful for having had the opportunity to learn from us to benefit everyone whom the Golf Trust has come in contract with because of our expertise and credibility. But as I've said before about Deersey, I think that also a lot of credit has to be paid to the Golf Trust and to Kai himself too. Even now, they've been using the lessons we've taught them to keep everyone engaged and ready. So Nate, give me your expertise on helping individuals with autism on the tennis court. Can you give us all three tips as to how to make sports, including tennis, more manageable for individuals with autism? I would be happy to. First of all, I just wanna highlight again and we've done it a few times in this episode, but how meaningful these sport trainings can be and, and how much fun they can be, not only for the participants involved, but also their families to get in and be able to see the joy that their child has when they hit a tennis ball over the net or they hit a golf ball 20 yards out into the field. And a couple of, a couple of tips that I would like to provide um, for making these sports more manageable for individuals with autism. I would say, first of all, when it comes to, and I'll probably speak more to tennis, especially because that's uh, where my expertise is. But when it comes to tennis, making sure to use um, different, different tennis balls in your lessons. So uh, when we do our trainings, we often have you know, the regulation size balls, but we also have some of the um, balls that bounce a little bit less high and are um, a little bit less fast paced. And especially when someone's just new to the sport and they're learning it, it's really useful to use um, these, these balls that are, you know, less uh, fast paced because it gives the participant an opportunity to learn the game and to be successful and build that foundation. Um, the second thing I would like to highlight is making sure that there's time in, in each class to allow these children or adults to have fun. I think that's one of the most important things for stimulating interest and maintaining that to the point where the participant continues to show up to class. You have to set time aside where they can hit with the coach or rally with each other. And those are the kinds of moments that they're going to remember, uh, remember and really think fondly about. Uh, and then number three, I would have to say, would just be um, 
would just be making sure that um, making sure that uh, you have coaches and people involved who have a lot of who who have a lot of passion and desire for what they're doing. I think that um, when it comes to learning these sports, and especially for individuals with autism, it does take good professionals to coach and lead these classes. They have to really want to be there, uh, be passionate about the mission and the sport as well. So those would be my three things, making sure you have the right equipment, the right coaches and staff involved in these classes. And then uh, last, but probably most importantly, making sure that there's a lot of fun that's in play. You thought that I was joking, uh, but we were joking last time when you were talking about tennis tips. <laughs> You know, that was my stealth, stealthy way of getting you to do that. <laughs> yes, believe it or not, I was quite a good tennis player. Still am. <laughs> the, photograph, the photo evidence, the evidence of everything like that is on the show notes of the last episode we did. Where I put down, he ain't lying. And I, I basically, they were gushing all over you. They were gushing all over you at what? University of North Carolina or something? We won't get into specifics right now. We'll, we'll let the, the show notes and the bio do the talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You always wanted to be humble. That, that's you, always wanting to be humble. Could have been the greatest uh, tennis player in college tennis. And, you know, it's just basically, eh, go read it. Go read the show notes. Just go read it, okay? I had enough of it, you know. <laughs> I, I, I'm just gonna convert my tennis skills to ping pong. That would be more man. That would be a more interesting conversion. Going from <laughs> the big court to just basically a ping pong table. I'm speaking of which. I'm very interested in how ping pong can be used. Uh, and, and classes can be conducted for people with autism. There hasn't been a whole lot done yet, but that, yeah, maybe we'll bring it to else. Yeah, or else a uh, big ping pong champion will start a foundation somewhere. <laughs> it will be called whatever, ping pong master Charles Brown. Uh, the Charles Brown for Autism Foundation and it's all about ping pong. Well, the greatest ping pong player of all time is still Forrest Gump. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so we work in a little bit of a merchandising angle with Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. And we say, why don't you uh, help us devise a ping pong program? You know, it just it's just so great to say ping pong because it's like, it's onomatopoeia and it's just a, Two letters are the same and everything like that. It's just so great to say. But unfortunately, you're, you're going to have to like create a lot of like glass walls and other things so that it doesn't get too nuts. You don't want ping pong balls flying all over the place. You bring up a good point. I was, I was thinking of putting the table right in your office, but you know, we'll, we'll pump the brakes on that plan. 
Are you going to uh, throw knives or something to stimulate a little bit of a ping pong practice? <laughs> Remember that scene from Balls of Fury? What was he throwing, a knife? Or if you can – no, that's uh, – yeah, yeah, he was throwing something, and it was like, you know, this this is how you play ping pong. I do remember that scene, but I don't know if we should use any uh, scenes from that movie as uh, as teaching points for how we would go about doing our classes. Well, maybe Will Ferrell was taught by a professional ping pong expert. <laughs> Bring that person in. All right. Okay. So, yeah. Before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in July with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general. As we usually say, Oh, 